Hello everyone and welcome to episode 303 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre, where you'll find writing courses and a fabulously supportive and wonderful writing community. And I'm here with my co-host, the very accomplished Alison Tate, also known as A.L. Tate, author of the popular Mapmaker Chronicles and Adaban Cipher book series. How are you, Al? Well, to be honest, Val, I'm sitting here thinking about the fact that we don't have opening music anymore. It's just, I've just remembered. It's just occurred Well, to me. it is. There is music, but it's just not the voiceover that we're used oh, to. Oh, it's you know, not Guy Smiley you anymore. Know, it's not that. That's it's, right. It's not all the various people. That's right. Because remember, we were going to write a song. I know. Back in the day. Back in the so day. you want to be a writer. <laughs> You're in the right place. Remember that one? yeah. <laughs> Was that how it went? I think so. You're so a lyricist. So you want to be a writer. This is your space. Oh my I'm sure God. that's what we were doing. <laughs> you should go write that with Book Boy. Okay. Oh, can you imagine? Dear Book Boy, can you put this to music for me, please? He would just look at me like, why would you even want to do that, Mum? Like, really? No. Because you might get paid. <laughs> oh, yes, yeah, the point. Anyway, um, apart from that, apart from drifting off into writing my own songs, you know, on the spot, yes. I am um, I'm, I'm all right. I'm fair That's to middling. good. You're just fair to middling this week. <laughs> I'm okay. just fair to middling. Fair no, I'm just fair to middling. I'm, well, I'm sort of, I'm into edits. And yes. um, so I'm doing a couple of different things. Um, as everybody would know, if you've been listening carefully for the last couple mm-hmm. of episodes, mm-hmm. and if you weren't listening carefully, let's just repeat it again, yes, shall we? let's repeat it um, again. I recently signed a contract for a new book, so I've got that one on my mind. Um, and I, I do believe that we did promise a couple of episodes ago to talk a little bit about the structural editing process. Yes. Um, and I wanted to share a link with you guys that I wrote. I actually wrote this a couple of years ago. I must have been in the midst of a different structural edit at that point. Um and it was, it's about, it's called Three Tips for Surviving a Structural Edit. And mm. the beautiful thing about writing blog posts like these is that you get to go back and remember that you did survive it last time and yes. that you will survive it again because um, the structural editing process can be a little traumatic, um, particularly depending on the scale of the actual edit involved. Um, and Before I think, you actually go and maybe in case there's some new people, maybe define a structural edit. The structural edit is the one is the is the first edit that you do after you sign a contract, or the first edit that you, before you self publish. It's it's the edit that you um, that people often leave out and probably mm. shouldn't. shouldn't. Um, it is the story edit. It is the does this make sense? It is you know have you got everything in the right spot? This is have you started in the right place? Yes. Which of course regular listeners will know is often an issue of mine. Um, is it's it's kind of like you know I always when I do the the kids. Um, creative quest, my online writing quest, um, which is for for young writers, mm-hmm. nine to fourteen. Mm-hmm. Um, I always say that there's like three edits involved in a in a, any story. There's and I call them the three S's because you know we've got to make things easy to remember. So the first one that you do is the story. So that's the structural edit. The second one that you do is the sentences. That's mm-hmm. the copy edit. You know, have, have you used the best word is, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then the third one is what I call the full stop. So technically not quite an S but close enough, um, which is the proofreading. That's where you're looking to make sure that your commas and everything are all in the right spot. Mm-hmm. Um, so the structural edit is is often the most traumatic 
um, edit for an author because, you know, this is – like I, I, I have talked about this before. There was one edit that I did where I was asked whether an entire character was required. Um, and, of course, I was – I mean, I was like, what do you mean? Of mm-hmm. course she's required. How can you possibly say that? Um, but it wasn't on the page. Like her importance – wasn't on the page, and that's that's sometimes where we fall down. Like it's in our head. We know, we know because we wrote the thing, right? We know how important she is. But if it's not actually on the page, the editor is going to be the first person to point that out to you. Um, and so, so was, in this, was she required in the end? She was. She was yeah. essential. Yeah. I just had to. I had to bump her up. Yeah, I had okay. to mm-hmm. support her more. Make. I had to put her on the page and in the scenes more mm-hmm. often than she was. She was kind of there, but she wasn't doing a lot. Um, so the, I, you know, and I do remember the first ever structural edit that I got and it, it was, uh, it made me cry. It was about Did 14 really? pages. Oh, God, it was awful. Really? It was about 14 pages long. It was a, a while ago. Like it was the one, the first manuscript that I ever had um, accepted for publication and we all know the traumatic story of that in that it didn't actually end up being published, that particular book. Um, so the first structural edit that I did on that one, it was, you know, for, it and, and I had edited the work, like I had done it myself, but admittedly back in those days I wasn't quite as good at editing my own work as I am now because, um, of course, everything takes practice. You don't know. We've talked about this so many times. You don't know what you don't know until you have to then go through it properly. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it was 14 pages and it was just, you know, like so many things that were wrong with it. Um, I had three characters in it and they all came from similar backgrounds and they all sounded the same. And if you're going to have three characters, you really, they all have to have a place in the book for a reason, you know. Um, and there was a, just a whole lot of different different things that were wrong with it. Um, so these days I don't cry as much um, because I'm more prepared, I think. I'm more prepared for the soul-crushing debacle mm. that uses structural edit. Um, but I had these tips uh, in, in this post that I wrote. Uh, one of them the first one is think before you write. So what happens is you, you get this manuscript, you get your notes, and your first instinct is either to go back to your editor and say, don't be ridiculous. Yes. You know, <laughs> I, how can you possibly say this about my amazing work? Yeah. Didn't you buy this? Like, really? Yeah. How bad can it be? Mm. Um, but you have to act. And, and the other thing that you do that you want to do straight away is just like dive straight into it and fix it. You just want to like just take those notes and you want to just go and do what needs to be done and get it out of your life. Um, and what I have learned is that the best thing that you can do is to read the notes mm. and then go for a very long walk with your dog, Yeah, you know, optional. Then um, yeah. you want to come back and read those notes again and then you you want to think about what you're going to do, like how much of it are you going to take on board, how much of it are you not. Mm-hmm. And it's often it's the things that, that you're most adamant about that don't need fixing that once you actually think about it, once you actually read those scenes again, once you actually go over the book again, um, you realise that, that maybe actually, you know, the editor is actually right about that mm-hmm. stuff and they are right most of the time. Mm-hmm. Now, when I talk about the fact that my character, you know, I, w- I was asked whether or not, to, uh, you know, she was required. Sometimes that's all your editor is doing, and they're letting you know that if you do want this character in this book, if this character has to stay for whatever reason, which my character did have to stay for a good reason, um, then you have to you have to make them worthwhile. Like you've got to make it there. You've got to put it on the page for them. Um, then the second point that I made in my 
in my post, which again, like honestly, I, I really love it when past me gives me advice because it's quite <laughs> useful sometimes, um, is to write fast and edit slow. So, oh, yeah. you know, my uh, people will know that my first draft process, if you followed me on Write a Book with Al, is basically like just wham, get that story down as much as you can in whatever time you have to write. Mm. Um, you make the time, you just write what you can and then you go back and, you know, you fix it. But it's when you come back to the fixing it that you have to, you, you do actually need time and space for that you have to concentrate on the story for the structural edit and that takes headspace mm. so you you know you might be able to write a novel in 10 to 15 minute fragments but you are going to need a little chunk of time aside to actually edit the thing properly because you have to be able to immerse yourself in the story and yeah. remember where everything is and what it's doing and the other thing that I learned as I have done this structural edit process many times is to use an outline. So what I basically do is I take the notes, I read over the book again. As I'm reading over the book again, I make notes, you know, this is what happens in this yes. scene, this is what happens in that scene, this character is here, that character is there, so that I can actually, you know, a bit of a plot of what's going on and I can see what's what's happening now mm -hmm. and that way I can easily kind of move things around to see what has to happen next. So that, those are my three tips for surviving you, a structural edit. Do you have to um, have some distance, you know, put it away, like go do other things for a while in order to be able to come back to a manuscript with fresh eyes? Or can you just keep on going? No, no. For this kind of process, for a big structural edit like this, if you're doing like a proper structural edit on it, you need space. Like you need to be able to read it like it's um, – Fresh. Like, yeah, like I'm I'm reading this manuscript at the moment, the one that, that I'm working on, you know, that I'm structurally editing. I haven't looked at it for oh, probably – nine months yeah so you you have left like space. to the point where it reads like someone else wrote yeah, it yeah like that's yeah. that's where I'm at with it and I think that that's, that's a really good. helpful place to mm. be with with this kind of work um but so when I uh, edit my own like I have edited this a few times myself like this is not like the first edit this thing has ever had sure. um I haven't sent a first draft off to my publisher um so the I, I also have a couple of posts on my on my website about how to edit your own writing. Mm. So um, there's one that is has my five tips on it, and there is one that has the five tips from Nicola O'Shea, who is a very very good uh, editor of fiction and nonfiction. And I'll put the links to both of these in the show notes mm -hmm. because I think it's really important to see how an editor approaches it and how you would I would approach it myself. Um, and I think that um, when you, even if you're just, even if you've just, you know, blasted out your first draft, and this is really worth thinking about with NaNoWriMo coming up, mm. you are going to blast out that first yes. draft. And then your first instinct on the 1st of December is going to be, wow, now I need to fix it. Um, I would suggest that you put it aside and come back to that, like go and have Christmas, like yeah. come back in mm. February um, and have a, have a read of it then. Fresh. Because the joy of it, the joy of that is that you get to see that bits of it are not as bad as you thought they were. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the horror of that is that you get to go, what was I thinking? I but that's okay because everybody does that, you know. Everybody does that. Everybody reads it and goes, oh, like, goodness me, what was I even contemplating here? Um, but there will be bits in there that you will just go, oh, this reads like someone else wrote it and that person was pretty good. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just yeah. like – and those are the bits that you're really, really looking for. And the other thing is that when you're editing your own writing – have that break because when you come back to it in February, the thing with it is that you you know how the book ends now. 
you know how the story ends, you know, exactly. Even if you've planned it out, sometimes things change along the way. Mm. So, ha- or and if you're like me and if you're just sort of like pantsing it away and you come out with this story, you know how it ends. So when you know how it ends and you go right back to the start, you can see whether you started in the right place. You can see where bits and pieces need to be seeded in to get you to the end properly. Mm-hmm. You can see where you've gone down a by road and you actually need to get rid of that like entirely to make sure that the course stays straight. So, um, yeah, the space is really important. Um, I, I just, yeah, I, I can't. So with this, how long, so obviously we've heard, listeners have heard you recently signed the book deal. Yeah. Now you're into starting the structural edit. How long do you think this period's going to last? The structural edit? Yeah. Well, I have a deadline, so I know how long it's going to last well, exactly. How, lo- how long? I, I, uh, well, I, I, don't, I don't dwell. I'm not one of those people that spends like five months. I don't have five months. Yeah. So it will be, I reckon, three weeks. Wow. Oh, my God. Yeah. Okay, that's a lot shorter than I expected. Yeah, well, but that's kind of just how that's my that's my yeah, that's your modus operandi. Sure. Yeah, other people take a lot longer than that, yes. um, and it depends on the. I mean, I did an edit um, for one of the books, uh, one of my existing books. So I already have the the Mapmaker Chronicle series out, which is four books, and I have the Adaban Cipher series out, which is two books. One of those books, and I won't say which one, um, took me a lot longer than that because I had a lot of movement in it. I had right. to move things around because mm. the way I had envisaged the story um, overall uh, was changed and so I had to actually really give some serious thought to the structure of how much I was going to put in this particular book and how much I was going to like because, it, you know, when you're writing series, you've got more than just the one book to think about. You have mm. to be the whole time thinking about where that big story in the background is also going. Mm. So you've got your story in the foreground, which is the one book that you're doing. So you've got your little narrative arc going on for all of that, character development, everybody's doing their various things, remembering that every single character that's in the book thinks the book is about them. Mm -hmm. So they all need their own character arc as well. So this is not just one character having a full blossom. This is every single character that you mention Mm. having some form of development in every single book. Um, and then in the meantime, you've also got going on in the background this bigger story, like with the Mapmaker Chronicles, we're racing around the world. So we've got all that going on. Mm. And you've got the character development of all of those characters across the whole three books as well. So that's a lot to be managing sometimes yeah. if your if if your overarching theory gets changed so you kind of got to think about that as well does that does does that make sense yeah that makes sense and I like the fact that um well for those people who are familiar with hashtag write a book with Al where you're literally (laughs) writing a book with Al this is like hashtag edit a book with Al (laughs) and I think it's good there's no hashtag here I'm not (laughs) well there's no hashtag (laughs) though but there's there's it's a real-time discussion on what you're actually going through with your novel so I think that's pretty interesting Hmm. but now let's move on to I want to share a link that's actually on the Australian Writers Centre blog called 13 Australian Authors Share Their Creative Rituals so these are all nominees for the 2019 Prime Minister's Literary Awards and they have shared their particular creative rituals which is great so we'll put the link in the show notes which of course you can find at so you want to be a writer.com.au. But just to give you a little bit of um, of a taster, um, Alison Whitaker, who 
uh, wrote Black Work, says, I keep a book by the bed and in my pocket, and once they're full, I file them. I try to write in bursts and in isolation when the time works. She also likes one peppermint tea, a banana, and a Whitaker's coconut block. <laughs> she's like you with a banoffee pie. Yeah, well, no, because um, that's... Oh, she's doing this all the time Yeah, yeah, you right. can't have banoffee pie like every day. So no. my thing for that is dark chocolate Maltesers. Oh, really? my God. In the, in the block version, as in like a Cadbury block, so they come actually in a block... So you can, you know, ration yeah, it yeah. out. It's so good. It's just right. Valerie's tip. So this is what you're doing while you're being creative. And often when I'm not. Every day. <laughs> I know I shouldn't, but. Wow. Yeah. But you can just break one off. Anyway, Eddie is. I mine would be cheese and bacon shapes. <laughs> really? I like I like crunchy salty when I'm thinking. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So anyway, sorry. Eddie is. I'm a big fan of Eddie Ayers and um, Eddie Ayers has written Sonam and the Silence and he says procrastinating isn't a ritual. (laughs) (laughs) I listen to some beautifully played music before I start, often cello music. It helps with a nice cadence at least, even if the words are rubbish. And of course, Eddie Ayers is a, I think a cellist or a violaist. I don't know what's the viola player. Um, uh, He's a classical musician, so that's unsurprising, Mm. and does the arts show on, um, I think it's Radio National. I I love it. It's just my weekly thing. Big fan. Kiri Saunders. um, Curly. Curly. Sorry, Curly Saunders, who we have coming up um, in the podcast, says, I'd say my better writing has always been served alongside some food and a good cup Mm. of something warm. So writing in cafes or restaurants is a bit of a habit of mine. I often start by writing the surface, which for me means writing what I'm feeling or the context of my thoughts at that given moment. I find this helps me identify what I'm trying to articulate sooner, which is kind of like a form of morning pages, right? Because when you Mm. do morning pages, you're just writing your thoughts, you know? But Mm. I totally relate to that because I spend an inordinate amount of time in cafes, not so much restaurants writing, but I do spend a lot of time in cafes, you know? Mm. You, you do too, don't you? Uh, no, not well, not really. Like I, well, I go, Procrasty Pub and I go to you a. have morning um, coffee. We have a coffee, but we, I walk with it. I don't sit in cafes uh, much. No, yes. I'm not a, I'm not a sitter of cafes very right. much. And I, and I have tried, I mean, we've talked about this before. I have tried it. I have tried writing in cafes, but I just get too distracted and, and I'd rather, you know, Yes. Know, read a paper or something. Yes. And of course, Sunita Perez de Costa, the very talented Sunita, who I caught up with recently in Melbourne, says, I have some rituals such as writing new material in the morning when the mind is fresh. I keep notes through the day on my phone or in an old fashioned notebook so that I can use them later. So, you know, what I just think these, um, it's always good to know what other authors creative rituals are because yeah. you know sometimes they're really surprising and sometimes you can just incorporate them into your own daily routine mm, absolutely I so agree. apart from your walking to get your coffee and then walking some more to think when you get home do you have a thing no I don't have a thing Val I just sit down and start because I um have found that the best way for me to do anything is just to get going with it. Don't you ever um, make a cup of tea or something? No, I don't drink tea. Well, you know, beverage. 
No, a glass of water. Okay. <laughs> I know. I'm so like really. I I need to work on my story, don't I? I you know, yeah. you want to be one of those authors that yeah. She, you know, remember who was it we were talking about that time? They had the glass of you know whiskey in bed before she got up every day. Well, oh, I've always wanted to be. Yeah. I've wanted to be that, but I'm just not. I'm so. I think all the years of working as a journalist mm. and you know having to get the stuff done and just getting on with stuff is just how I operate now. And I it doesn't make for very good copy, but it does get a <laughs> lot of words written. So okay. there's that. All right. Fair enough. Yeah. So anyway, if you want to have a read of all the other authors' creative rituals, it's over on our blog, which um, and we'll put the link in the show notes. It's soyouwannabearwriter.com.au. All right. Now let's move on to our competition this week. We have three copies of Big Sister, Little Sister, Red Sister by Jung Chang. And uh, you can win one of those three copies. They were the most famous sisters in China. As the country battled through a hundred years of wars, revolutions, and seismic transformations, the three Sung sisters from Shanghai were at the center of power, and each of them left an indelible mark on history. A gripping story of love, war, intrigue, bravery, glamour, and betrayal, which takes us on a sweeping journey from Canton to Hawaii to New York, from exiles' quarters in Japan and Berlin to secret meeting rooms in Moscow, and from the compounds of the communist elite in Beijing to the corridors of power in democratic Taiwan. Oh, my God, this is like Goodness a death me. setting. That is sweeping. This is like an atlas. <laughs> yeah, a sweeping story indeed. Very. Um uh, entries close on the 28th of October. So just go to writercenter.com.au slash win for your chance to win one of three copies of this book, which is no doubt going to be a bestseller as everything else written by this author is. Um, so it's writercenter.com.au slash win. So, Al, are you ready for the word of the week? I am, Valerie. <laughs> I'm ready. Okay. Circumlocution. Yes, I know this one. Do you? I do. Okay. Well, yeah. it's probably not that surprising. So you might be able to guess what this word means if you're listening. It means using too many words or talking around something but not getting to the point. So yes, talking in circles. Talking in circles, yes. Try I do know that one. That. I don't know why. I must have learned it in... English or something, you know, year 12 English or something. Yes, it's a good one. All right, <laughs> let's move on to our writer in residence this week. I'm so excited, Al. Oh, okay. Right. So I'm the world's <laughs> I'm waiting. biggest Bruce Springsteen fan. Well, maybe right. not the world's biggest, but I am a fan of Bruce Springsteen and I um you know, discovered him when I was 16 during the Born in the USA period. So when I came across this book, uh, I was, oh, it's, that was very, very excited. Um, it's called Blinded by the Light. It was originally released under the name of Greetings from Berry Park, but it's now called Blinded by the Light because it has been made into a movie called Blinded by the Light, which is out this week in Australia. It's written by Safras Manzur, who is a UK journo, originally born in Pakistan, but uh, migrated with his family to the UK when he was four. And this book, this memoir, and of course the ensuing movie, 
is about his experience growing up in Britain and apart from being a great story in itself, the story of how this book, I mean, this book ultimately got made into a movie directed by none other than the director of Bended by Beckham and the way in which um, Bruce Springsteen was involved is um, is is going to be discussed in this interview. Now, I just want to make reference to the fact that um, Safras and I discuss a uh, release date in this interview of the 22nd of August because at the time the movie was being released then, um, but then the release date got changed, which is why uh-huh. we've held over this interview <clears throat> till now. And, um, yeah, it's out this week. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Safras Manzor. Thank you so much for joining us today, Safras. Oh, it's great to talk to you. Now, a couple of months ago, I stumbled on this trailer on YouTube, Blinded by the Light. I had no idea what it was about, but I played it. And by the end of the trailer, I found myself in tears. And I'm like, why? And so I found myself Googling and discovered that we've basically just been living in parallel universes. You were three years old when you moved from Pakistan to Luton. I was four years old when I moved from Singapore to Sydney. The date you arrived in England for the first time to start your new life is my birthday. It's at the age of 16, you discovered Springsteen because your friend Amalak introduced you to it. That's when I discovered Springsteen because my friend Chu Ming introduced me to him. Springsteen's words inspired you to love words. You see, you wrote poems as a teenager. You eventually became a writer. I knew that I wanted to become a writer. Now, this is really st- stretching things, but I'll go there. Um, the first movies you saw at the cinema were Back to the Future, which I was obsessed with, Rocky, and I named my cat Rocky, Rambo, I named my dog Rambo. You studied economics. I studied economics. You did postgraduate in documentary production. I did postgraduate in journalism. So I thought, oh my goodness, I have to talk to this guy. So Do you know what all, I'm feeling? That I'm, I'm, I just feel like we've got nothing in common. <laughs> nothing at all. So I have yet to see the movie because the screening is not until next week. It's going to be released in late August in Australia. I have The first thing I did was uh, read your book, which I had not read yet. So you, if the movie is based on your memoir, which you wrote in 2007, Greetings from Berry Park, and now the movie Blinded by the Light is being released. And you also co-wrote the screenplay for the movie. So for those who have yet to discover these gems yet, what is the book about? And what part of your life does the movie then cover? Okay. So basically, thank you for all that. And (laughs) it is interesting when you do something which is very personal and it's coming from a very personal place and then you find people who find their own story in it, you know. Mm. And and so that's kind of – I mean, obviously, there seems to be a lot of real interesting parallels. And and, uh, so the story of Greetings from Berry Park, well, basically, I grew up in, um, as you sort of mentioned, in a town called Luton, which is in sort of 30 miles north of London. I came to Britain when I was three years old. My dad was a factory worker. He worked in a car factory. My mum was a seamstress and just made dresses uh, late into the night at home. And we came from a very working class family and the expectations for somebody like me were pretty minimal. My dad was first generation immigrant and he wanted us to do something that was going to be better than what 
he was doing. But in his mind, that would have meant, you know, a job which had some status, something that he could feel proud of. Certainly nothing that was going to be creative, nothing that was, you know, there was nobody in the world that I was around which who worked in the world of ideas or anything to do with creativity. So my world was fairly limited in that sense. And it was also very limited in the time, in the idea about things like love and marriage. So I was expected mm. to have an arranged marriage. And so I never really wanted any of these things. And even as I was a kid, I was just like, there's got to be more to life than this. But I didn't really understand how that could happen. And then when I was 16, I started college in, in the autumn of 1987. And um, a guy called Roops, uh, Molak, uh, introduced me to uh, some music. And he said, this is going to change your life. And I, I said, what is it? He said, Bruce Springsteen. I said, Bruce Springsteen, isn't he that guy who makes millions out of pretending to be working class? <laughs> and uh, and Amalak said, you're an idiot. Listen to this music. I listened to it. And it really did just make me rethink my life. And so when I wrote Greetings from Berry Park, it was it was partly a kind of a salute of thanks to Bruce Springsteen for having helped inspire me and to change my life. And it was also actually a tribute to my dad and my mum and that generation of fathers and mothers who sacrificed so much so that people like me, you know, could 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 work and do the things we wanted to do. So the book came out in 2007 and then I sort of had an idea that it could make a film, but you know, I'm sure you know this, that the number of people who have an idea of a film being made and the number who actually get it made, you know, that's not a great hit rate. So I didn't really do that much with it, but I did I think to myself, if anyone can make this film happen, it's going to be Gorinda Chadha because she'd made Bend It Like Beckham. Yeah. And that was a story. It was also about a kid from a South Asian background who was into something that was unlikely. And, and she was a friend of mine. So I introduced her to the book and she loved the book. And so we sort of started on that journey. Now, Blinded by the Light, the film, I, when I was trying to think about how to make the story happen in terms of a film, I could I knew that a book wasn't going to be the film because the book is it, it, it's not it's not linear. It covers a lot of time. Mm. It's not really it doesn't feel like it's going to be a film. And so it was a it was a while before I realized that the story I really thought would be the best one to tell in a film would be the rites of passage story. It would be the story about what it's like to go from a moment when the world is the same as it was and then it changes. So Blinded by the Light start with my character just about to start college in the autumn of 1987. And so he has this world that he exists in, which is the world I talked about of expectations and limited limited expectations. And then he discovers Springsteen, and then it carries on right up to the moment that he's about to go to university in Manchester. So those years of between sort of 16 to 18, when the child becomes, you know, the adult, when the boy becomes the man, and you have to sort of learn to step away from the shadow of your dad, that's the kind of, that's the nub of the story of, uh, that, that we're covering in, in, in Blinded by the Light. Now, I just want to make it clear to listeners that even though it's called Blinded by the Light and even though your book is called, is called Greetings from Berry Park, which for, if, for listeners who don't know, one of Springsteen's first albums was Greetings from Asbury Park, the book and the movie, they're not about Springsteen. It really is no. a coming-of-age story. It's really there's yeah. themes of identity and belonging and racism and where is home and but having and 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 it's and it's a and it's an incredible read and I just can't wait to see the movie but having said all of that I want to just dig a little bit deeper into something that you just alluded to and you said in the book Bruce Springsteen changed my life because in his music I saw the promise of hope and escape and self-improvement so 
But for though I get it because I get Springsteen, but for those people who have yet to discover him, <laughs> what do you mean? How did that happen? Okay, so basically um, when I got into Springsteen, before I got into him, I was a top 40 kind of kid so the music i listened to i wasn't i wasn't into the cool music i was into what was in the charts yeah so 1987 we're talking about you know we're talking about madonna you know who's that girl around about, it was around about that sort of time talking about michael jackson i was really into power ballads you know the bonnie tylers and the <laughs> foreigners and and the heart and all that kind of stuff and and the pet shop boys and all that all that kind of music and i loved it but it wasn't really about anything it was basically just sort of simple escapism, you know, and when it talks about love, it was in a completely over the top, ridiculous way. And most of the time it was just about having fun. And then I listened to Springsteen and Springsteen is not singing about these things at all. He's singing about what it's like to live in a town that you don't want to live in. You know, in Thunder Road, the last line of Thunder Rose Road is it's a town full of losers and I'm pulling out of here to win. And I remember listening to that and thinking, I had no idea that Bruce Springsteen had been to Luton. You know, it sounded like he absolutely, <laughs> it sounded like he knew my, my hometown. You know, in Born to Run, he says, I want to know if love is wild. I want to know if love is real. Mm-hmm. Now, as somebody who was looking at the idea of an arranged marriage as my future, I also wanted to know if love was real. You know, and when he sings in um, Independence Day about his dad and he says there's different people coming around and they see things in different ways and soon everything you've known will be swept away. That's what I wanted to tell my dad to say, look, it's not that I'm trying to destroy you everything about you. It's just the times are changing and I see the world in a different way. And so what I found with Springsteen was that rather than trying to escape from the real world, he was actually talking about the real world. He was talking about the life that I knew and he was talking about what it was like to do jobs you didn't want to do or to try and find love in a difficult time. He was talking about friendship. And so in a way, he was actually describing the world as it was and it was a great line i read which was that most music was about saturday night but mm-hmm. bruce springsteen sang about monday to friday mm-hmm. and that's that's why i connected with him mm, absolutely but you obviously connected with him to the next level i did not reach your super fan status because you largely also because of geography it's a lot easier to get around when you live in the northern hemisphere than when you live in sydney australia to go to concerts but you have been to i read somewhere over 150 concerts in literally in cities all around the world is that right yeah, yeah, it is. And I know that sounds quite a lot, and it is, but you know, you go for, go, but think about it, it is over 30 years. So if you think about it over 30 years, it's only five a year. So, you know, it kind of it, it evens out. But yeah, so between two, 1992 and 2005, I went to see every single Springsteen show in the UK. So when he would do a tour, I would just travel around the country seeing every night. And then you're right. If you live in Britain, you know, Europe is not too far away in terms of mainland Europe. And so I saw him in Spain and Italy and France. And I went to see him in Sweden. I went to see him in New York. And I went to see him in, uh, oh, where did I see him in Pittsburgh and Washington? So, yeah, so there was quite a lot of, but the thing is, and you'll probably know this, the thing is, you see, just before the lights go up and Springsteen's about to go on stage, you know that the next three hours are going to be absolutely amazing. Mm. 
Mm. You're going to have this extraordinary time and you're going to hear amazing songs and you're going to get this sense of connection and community in this concert. So if you have this guaranteed pleasure Mm. that is possible, why wouldn't you do it? (laughs) Now, I understand that uh, you kind of ended up having a community because there are other super fans like you who would also travel to every single concert and basically you just all get to know each other and hang out in the first few rows. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Because basically what would happen, I mean, this was around about 2002, 2003. We traveled around, went to Barcelona, went to Bologna, went to Paris. And yeah, it was hilarious. We'd basically travel as a contingent and then it would be the same people in the front row, regardless of which city it was. I have to say, I think Springsteen probably must have got a bit fed up because he'd go to these <laughs> different cities all around the world. And it'd be the same losers on the front row who'd be looking at him. But um, but yeah, no, we did. But then you do get a real sense of connection and camaraderie with all these people, you know. And uh, there's all these rituals in terms of making sure that people will sort of, you know, hold a line for you. But also, I did, this is, you know, in the days before you know, Ticketmaster and all this sort of online ticketing, I used to sleep out overnight for tickets, mm-hmm. you know. So with Wembley Arena, when the Human Touch Talk came on, tickets came on sale for that in 1992, tickets went on sale, I remember, at Thursday, 12 o'clock outside Wembley Arena. And we were there on Tuesday morning. Mm-hmm. Dedicated, dedicated. Sleeping on cardboard <laughs> boxes outside for two nights. Mm. All right, so you you then write... Greetings from Berry Park. And do you know at what point Bruce read it? Or do you know if Bruce read it? Um, I wrote it and I had an idea about wanting to send it to him. Mm. and But I just couldn't think about what the covering letter would say. You know, I just couldn't work out what to say in it. So I never did. Um, and then in three years later, 2010, um, Springsteen came to came to London for a show. It was a premiere of the documentary The Promise, which was about the making of darkness on the edge of town. And he had a screening at the British Film Institute in London on the South Bank. And I got a ticket to go. And it was a bit of an exclusive thing because he was going to be having a kind of a drinks reception mm-hmm. and um, in the foyer of the BFI. So I went along with Gorinda Chadha, the director, and I brought my book with me. So I thought, you know, if I were to get a chance to sort of see him, I could hand him the book. And by this point, you know, because I had seen him so many times and, you know, there had been a number of times where I would just stand outside a venue for a couple of hours on, you know, waiting for him to come out. And yes, there were some times when I would stand outside hotels for a couple of hours waiting for him to come into hotels. So he kind of knew me and he was familiar with my face. And, and in concert, during the concert, when he'd see me, he would always point to me and smile at me and stuff. So there was a kind of connection and familiarity, nothing much yeah. more than that. Yeah. And uh, so when he, in 2010 he came, I, was, I had my book and then he was sort of, he walked in and there's all these flashbulbs going and everything and my heart's pumping and I'm just hoping I can kind of catch his eye or wave at him to kind of mm-hmm. usher him towards me or something. And then he's there and then he sees me and he notices and recognizes me and stops what he's doing and walks right up to me and then just says, hey, uh, I just got to tell you, I really loved your book. Oh, wow. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, you, you've read it. Mm-hmm. He says, yeah, yeah, no, I've read it. I've read it. It's a really beautiful thing. I said, how do you know about the book? He says, oh, people, people send me copies. They send me copies all the time. It's a really, really lovely thing. 
And Gorinda was there and she was like, okay, we've got to, we've got to grab this moment. And she's like, okay, we're going to make a film of this book. And she said to Bruce, and she said to Bruce, and I made Bender like Beckham, and I know your kids like that, and we're going to make a film of this book. And he's like, okay, okay, well, talk, talk to John Landau, so his manager. And, uh, and that was the trigger point that made us think, you know, let's try and make this happen. Let's see if we can maybe actually use the fact that Springsteen is a fan of the book and maybe try and then work on a script that he might like, which would then mean that he would give us the approval for his music. So at this point, you had not started writing a screenplay yet. That was no. the jumping off point. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So let's start. Let's talk about that. So now you decide you're going to write a screenplay or co-write the sc- screenplay with Gurinder. Yeah. And yeah. as you say, your book is structured in such a way that it's not linear. It kind of jumps around timelines and it's not. that's not the way a movie would typically roll out. Um what did you have to do really on a practical level? Did you kind of have to think, okay, I'm going to pretend the book didn't exist and I'm going to start from scratch? Or did you rearrange the book and then turn it into dialogue? What did what happened on a practical level? Really good question. Level? So basically, that's a really good question. So basically, what I did was I read books on how to do this. <laughs> so I, I read Sid Field um, yeah. on screenplay, I read Blake Snyder um, called Save the Cat. Um, and I started just understanding the three-act structure. And I just literally learned the, the architecture of what a three-act structure was, what is a midpoint, what is an inciting incident, because I didn't really know that language. Mm-hmm. And then I, I remember doing this. I got myself a uh, you know, legal pad, yellow legal pad, mm-hmm. and I wrote down opening, inciting incident, end of act one, end of act two, you know, midpoints. And then I said, okay, so based on the story of my life, what fits these things? So the inciting incident has to be discovering Springsteen. Okay, so we know that. The end of Act 1, that's probably listening to Bruce. But if it's listening to Bruce, then the end of Act 2 has to be the exact opposite thing. So it's got to be the moment which is the exact opposite of jubilation. So I thought, okay, well, I remember there was a moment which felt like that. And so I, I put that in. And I said, well, the end has obviously got to be departure and leaving. And so then I started then filling out that structure. And the other thing I did was I went through the book and I actually did a, a lot of just brainstorming scenes and dialogue. Because the thing about a film that's different from a book is you can't just say how you're feeling the whole time. Mm. You've got to show it. So I just went through and I thought, okay, so what are the key details? What are the scenes? What are the things that my dad used to say? What are the moments? What are the emotions that I wanted to try and get in? And I just literally listed and wrote them all down. And then the idea was to try and craft a story which would be kind of fictionalized, but which all of that essential truth, whether it was things that my dad said or single moments, I would then crowbar them in and I would pack them in so that the film would have that inherent authenticity. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that that makes sense. And did you do it because you co-wrote it? How did that work? Did you sit next to each other, you know, piano style, or did you no. sit, write bits, or how did that work? No. Well, basically what happened was that for the first four or five years, I actually just wrote it on my own, mm. and I would have sort of meetings with Gorinda and her partner, Paul, every sort of four or five months where we would just, I would send, uh, I spent about two years just doing a scene outline, mm. just to get the structure, because I, I just thought, you know what, if I don't know what the structure is, 
I ain't going to get anywhere. So I really, really worked hard on the structure to make sure that I knew exactly what was happening in each scene and what was happening so that before I ended up writing anything, I had the structure nailed. And so I would work on it for three, four, five months. I'd then send it to them. They'd give me feedback and then they'd say, okay, you need to dig deeper here. You need to get a bit more emotional here. Think about this bit more. You know, so they'd give me notes on those sorts of things that I'd go off and do it again. Um, so that was pretty much how it worked. And then towards the end, Gorinda, because she was the director of it, she ended up doing a little bit more work in terms of making a director's pass and, you know, working on. Mm-hmm. So she had some clear ideas about um, like I'll give you an example. For example, that was something which was the film starts in 1987. Um, and this is actually quite interesting. So basically the film starts in 1987 and it starts with, you know, with, with my character. But one of the things that we were concerned about was, you know, we wanted people who weren't from a South Asian background to see it. We didn't want it to feel like it was a niche film. And so we had this idea, well, actually, Gurinder had this idea that the opening scene could be something which has got my character and his English friend together as boys when they were 10 years old and they're chatting away and they're talking about what's going to happen to them when they're older. And then it fast forwards to 1987. So the very first thing you see is two boys, one of them white, one of them Asian, sitting together because that feels to an audience oh yeah i can go on a journey with these two boys even though 99 percent of the film is actually about the asian boy mm. um, it just feels like a way of trying to feel make it make it feel more open you know mm. and so that was something which, which which i would never have thought of but that's a, that's a filmmaker gorinda was you know had that idea so yeah so it was more of a collaboration later but for me, it was really important that we try to make it as authentic as we could. So, for example, you know, if you read the book, you'll know that my, you know, that my dad worked in a car factory. Mm. He in the film, in the film, he works in a car factory. If you read the book, you know that I wrote poems. My actual poems are in the film. Um, you know, if you, I worked in a sandwich factory. The character in the film works in a sandwich factory. So all that detail was 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 put in. But then we sort of did what we needed to do to get it to be to work for the grammar of what a feature film is. Mm-hmm. And then at some point you needed to involve Bruce Springsteen, not least because you would have had to get permission to use the songs, which are such a big part of the film. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, basically what was quite, an, it was a really hard thing actually, because it's like, imagine you're trying to do something and it literally, it literally lives lives on di- lives and dies on the judgment of one yeah. person. You know, so if this, so I was just to say, you know what, say somebody came to me with 10 million pounds, we could have the budget to make the film, but we still couldn't make the film without Bruce. You know, say a big, say big distributor said, we'll distribute this to every cinema in, in, in the country. Great. If we don't have the music, it all came down to Bruce Springsteen yeah. because if we couldn't get his music, there is no film and we couldn't. And he is very, very, um, careful about who he gives his music to he just doesn't really do it you know it's very very rare that you will see a film which has got a springsteen song in it because he doesn't give it away and if you do it might be just one song because he knows the filmmaker or something so it was so gorinda always said to me you've got to write a script that bruce springsteen will like and you know that's a heck of a pressure so yeah we worked on it for a while um and then in 2017 i get this call from her saying okay so um we feel like it's now ready to send to bruce and so we're going to send it to springsteen i said okay and i said but we feel like you should write a letter to him explaining why you want his music could you do that tonight (laughs) so 
I was like, okay, how long have I got? And she goes, like, what, two hours if you've got, you know, can you do two hours? And so the kids are asleep, got these two young children, they're in bed, my wife's sort of pottering around, and I open the laptop, and I literally have to write this letter, which starts, Dear Bruce, yeah. and to try and write something, which isn't going to be, you know, a 5,000 words or anything, I can't, it has to be fairly tight, it has to be fairly concise, but it basically has to say, you know, can we have it? And I thought to myself, it sounds like a cliche, but this letter is a life-changing moment. This is the thing which, mm. if if this happens, my life will change. And if it doesn't happen, you know, things will be very different. And and so I wrote the letter. And then for the next two or three weeks, there was this agonizing mm. silence, absolutely agonizing silence. And then in early June, I was in Hay on Wye for the book festival. And uh, it's, a, it's a really massive book festival on the borders of England and Wales. And I go there every year. And so I was there in a little cottage with my wife and, and kids. Because, and, um, and it was a couple of days before my birthday. And I get this phone call from Gorinda. And I answer it. And she's singing happy birthday to me. Mm-hmm. And I said, what? And she goes, I've got you a, got a birthday present. I was like, Bruce has just come back to us. And he said, I'm all good with it. Mm-hmm. I said, what does that mean? She goes, that's it. We've, we've, got, we've got him on board. So the, that means we can have the film. We can, the film can go ahead. So I just like jumping around. I just, I mean, pure exuberation and exhilaration. And, and and but the thing is, I want to run upstairs and tell Bridget, my wife, because I'm like, oh my god, you know, which is which is a journey I've gone on with her. And um, but the problem is that I'd had a massive argument with her that night um, <laughs> about something really minor. Like I think I'd forgotten to take the bins out, and it was a day of bin collection the next day or something. Something minor which had really upset her. And so she'd gone to bed in a bit of a huff. And I was like, I I wonder if I can wake her up and say, could we just park this petty argument because I've got some really big news for you. And I didn't feel like she's not somebody that sort of lets it lie for a while. So I thought, no, I think maybe I won't. So I had to basically celebrate this news on my own, jumping around in this cottage in the middle of the border between England and Wales, knowing this exciting news, but not being able to share it with anyone. Oh, my God. God, but how exciting. What a what a moment. I mean, what a moment. So you you in in the book, in the movie, even though there's lots of Springsteen in it, it is about family and, and race and, and, and a number mm. of other themes. Um, one of the interesting things that you've already touched on is that your fam you had a lot of family pressure to have an arranged marriage. And it's almost, I mean, we're talking and it's a bit hard to believe that a Brit like you who's lived there since you were three years old, certainly way more years than you lived in Pakistan, could be expected to have an arranged marriage or, you know, or, or mm. that, that kind of pressure. And in a sense, Bruce Springsteen's songs kind of encouraged you to break away from that expectation of an arranged marriage or at least the pressure that you had to marry a Pakistani woman, is that right? Because your your wife, yeah. you mentioned your wife is Caucasian and non-Muslim. You're Muslim, yeah, yeah. And and so and so that didn't happen. Yeah, I mean, it's true that you think, gosh, how can this stuff still be going on? Which is basically mm. what you're saying. And the reason is because it's not 2019 in some of these communities. You know, it's mm. still kind of the mid 70s or or the mid 80s because. That they there is a bit of a bubbled world. So, like you know, when I go and visit my family, you wouldn't necessarily, you know, the attitudes and and and, and the thoughts they've got 
are not that much connected to what's going on in the rest of the country. So, no, I really was expected to have have an arranged marriage, and my brother did, and my older sister did. So it's not like, you know, and, and so and in fact, out of the gang that I grew up in at college, you know, most people did out of my out of the world that I come from. And, um, and I always say that Springsteen, in a way, sort of ruined my love life for me because he kind of sang songs about love in such a way that made me think, I think I'd like a bit of this, you know, and it wasn't really was expected. So in, in Born to Run, you know, he has this line where he says, you know, he talks about talking to a girl called Wendy and he says, we'll live with the sadness and I love you with all the madness in my soul. Yeah. And I'm thinking, can you imagine meeting someone and saying that I love you with all the madness in my soul? And I just didn't think I was going to get this from an arranged, from an arranged marriage. And so you have these kind of expectations of what love can be like and it doesn't feel like that's what's going to happen in the world that you're kind of linked to. It's funny, actually, now that you mention it, you know, because I've just realized that, you know, in terms of, you know, uh, where or who I'm talking to and where I'm talking to you from, mm-hmm. um, I used to keep, I still, I, I still keep a diary, but I used to keep a diary when I was a kid. And um, I've got this entry from about 1986 where I am even then kind of, because I knew that this was coming around the corner for me, you know, the idea of an arranged marriage. And um, I remember I was a big. I used to watch Neighbours at the time. And <laughs> do you do you? I don't know if you. I don't know. What, I don't know how old you are. But do you remember Scott and Charlene? Yeah, of do you course. Remember, okay. So I remember the wedding of Scott and Charlene, Jason yes. Donovan and Kylie. And I have this diary entry which says, "Why can't love be as simple as it is seems to be for Scott and Charlene? Why can't <laughs> I have the love that them two have?" You know, oh why, why can't I have that? And it was just like, because I was 15, I was watching these people getting married on TV. And I was just like, why does it have to be so complicated? Why do I have to marry some girl from a village that I've never met? Yes. Why can't I have what, what Jason and Kylie have? And it wasn't done in a kind of jokey way. It was a really a heartfelt plea to myself and in my diary. So that oh was God. kind of what I was expecting. Yeah. Yes. And I understand that your mother would try and arrange um, girls that she knew or who were daughters of people she knew to talk to you on the phone to see if there's potentially something there. And you would ask them, do you like Bruce Springsteen? Did you really? Yeah, I did. I mean, to be honest, honest, what it was is like, I have to say my, my, my relationship history wasn't that great. So I was like, if you know, maybe, maybe I'm being a bit naive. Maybe I'm being a bit silly to like close the door on something. So, but you know, you want to have some kind of connection with someone, don't you? So they, she would literally, I would come home and there would be phone numbers on my bedside table (laughs) and there would be very little information about who these numbers were from. Mm-hmm. And um, and there would be very airy conversations because she'd never have talked to the girl herself. She'd always talk to the parents, and it was always got it. There's something was always lost in translation. So I remember there was one time she said, "This is a woman, and um, she's a the girl is a a dentist, and she studied at Cambridge." And I was thinking, well, Cambridge University is a pretty fine, you know, place of learning. And dentistry, that's a good job. You know, you can, you're never going to be out of work as a dentist. So maybe it's worth giving her a call. So I did actually ring her. And, uh, but it turned out that she was a dietitian living in Cambridge. And so it wasn't quite the same thing. <laughs> I remember uh, reading in your book, there was one who your mother wrote down was a biochemist, but actually she was like, she worked at Boots. 
you know yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 i think she was like she worked in a pharmacy yeah and you know the thing is it's it is funny but it's also kind of you know it's it's about parents thinking that they're trying to do the best for you as well you know so my mom genuinely i tell you that the saddest look my mom ever had was when i would come home from my life in london and she would say so so who did your laundry for you and so i did it she goes, and who made your dinner? I said, I made it. And she just looked as if me as if I had just, you know, as if I had lost in the lottery of life, that I had nobody who would care for me. Nobody was going to look after me. Nobody. And I was like, I'm actually kind of okay. I don't need, but her thing was, is he going to be okay? You know, is he going to be looked after? Is he going to have, and so it came from a good place, but it just, it, it didn't, you know, it just wasn't working in the language or the world that I was actually in. Mm. So then you meet your wife, Bridget, and you go on a date. Is that because she liked Bruce Springsteen? Sadly not, no. <laughs> I have to say that that's outside of the remit of the book because when I yes. wrote the book, uh, I'm happy to talk about it, but I wrote the book and it got published in 2007. Mm. And um, what happened was that the following I, – I launched it at the Hay Book Festival and then the following year I returned and I was coming back from the Hay Festival on my way to London – and I sat opposite this gorgeous woman with um, green eyes and blonde hair, and she was reading a book. And I started, ended up having a conversation with her. And I enjoyed the conversation so much that I really wanted to see her again. And I said, look, I don't want to be a creep. You know, I don't want to be some sort of person who's sort of haranguing you and you're not interested. Um, I didn't use those exact words, but that was the implication. And uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm not going to take your number, but I'll give you my number. And... So if you want to call me, you can, but I've got no way of contacting you. And uh, and then about two days later, Good she contacted news. me. It was it was born from desperation, and so <laughs> I um I uh, and so then I con and then she contacted me about two days later. Then we went on a date, and then we ended up getting married. Um and uh, she's not she so she wasn't a Springsteen fan, but she is now. She you yes. know she doesn't get him obviously like I do, but um she does. She actually says to me sometimes that uh, she sort of reminds me that when we were when we were I think the word is courting when we were courting in the early days, I used to play her Springsteen, which is kind of fair enough. But I would always do a very lengthy introduction before the song to kind of give her a bit yes. of context as to what the song was about, where Bruce was in his life, what was going on in the career, and just to sort of look out for some key phrases. And she actually said to me, which was quite sweet, she said, I miss those days when you'd give me those little mini symposiums about Bruce Springsteen's songs. Um, so this isn't in the book either. I read this in a piece you actually wrote in The Guardian and I was a bit sad, actually, because you wrote about your wedding and oh, yeah. the fact that um, none of your family were going to attend, but at the last minute, your mother and younger sister did. But your two older siblings, brother and sister, specifically chose not to. Mm. I I still find that conf confounding. Um, is that something that you have come to terms with? Um, and this is obviously specifically because you didn't end up marrying a, you know, Pakistan. Yeah, yeah. It's a hard question. Um, I don't know if I've come to. I guess I've come to terms with it in the sense of that's what happened, mm -hmm. but I haven't come to terms with it in the sense of that it was a right thing to do. Mm. You know, I kind of feel like my brother's only got one brother, which is me. 
and I don't feel like what I did was that bad to be, um, you know, to be punished or for that to happen. And I also feel like weddings are once in a lifetime moments and they'll never happen again. And could you not have just, you know, bitten the bullet, swallowed your pride and just gone with it? Um, so it's quite, it's a hard one to be honest. I sort of, I do feel like it's an example. And that piece that you're talking about, which I wrote for the guardian just after I got married, it's one of the pieces which I've had the most responses from. And the clear, crazy thing is that even now, like literally last week, I still get messages via Facebook and Twitter from people who are in similar relationships, wanting advice saying, you know, I mean, just literally last week, somebody got in touch and said, I'm, I'm, I'm a Pakistani woman. I'm in a relationship with this English guy, but I feel like my parents will disown me and they'll say that the culture clash is too great. What should I do? You know, it's like I've become like this unpaid agony un uncle for people. Um, and the, I think the truth about it is, that, yes, it is painful, the fact that they didn't turn up, but it would have been more painful to not have ended up with her, yeah. with my wife. Mm. And so... And going back to Springsteen, there's a line um, in Prove It All Night where it says, if dreams came true, wouldn't that be nice? But this ain't no dream we're living through tonight. If you want it, you take it and you pay the price. Mm. And so I guess, you know, sometimes you, if you want something, you take it and then you have to pay the price. Yes. On a more positive note, uh, at the wedding, just for listeners' interest, you, your friend, Amalaku, who features in the book, in the movie, did a reading of lyrics from a Bruce Springsteen song <laughs> and tables Why is were that named. funny? I just think it's hilarious because you are so next level. Um, and tables were named after iconic albums and you sat on Born to Run, of course. Of yeah. course. So I think that that's really, really Well, cute. we just wanted to do, do you know what we wanted to do? We wanted to mess it up with the things. You know, it's like, I like the idea of a wedding, but I didn't feel like we had to do all the kind of traditions and formalities that everybody does, you know? Mm. And so I thought, let's have all the tables. There was tables called, you know, What's the Story, Morning Glory, and Nirvana's mm. Nevermind, and things like that. And then the other thing which was really important was I was like, what's with all this stuff? Like, the bride doesn't get to say have a speech. Yeah. That's crazy. And so I was like, no way. So, so Bridget made, you know, did a talk as well. And we didn't have a best man. I just had like a couple of my mates talk. So we just messed it around a bit. And so with the readings, rather than doing some kind of, you know, some poem that nobody's ever heard of that just tried to sound pretentious, I thought, well, let's have a line from, you know, if I should fall behind, which is all about relationships and marriage and things like that. And so it was just trying to stay true to who we were, you know. Mm. Now, I have to mention to listeners that even though it may not sound like it, you do write about <laughs> things apart from Bruce. You've written and presented documentaries on, you know, class, profiles on famous people, cricket, where you followed the Pakistan cricket team across England one year, um, religion. But obviously, and I just want to make that clear to listeners that you do do other things and that you're a journalist and a documentary maker. But obviously, Bruce has been in a constant in your life. And I have to ask why at um you decided in 2012 to do stand up at the Edinburgh oh, yeah. festival with a show yeah. called The Boss Rules. Yeah. Why? <laughs> well, I it's a good question. I think um you know maybe it was a midlife crisis. I don't know. <laughs> I think I was I was just turned 40 and um so I was probably 41 at the time. Do you know what it is? Is there's a bit of it where I quite like if somebody says to me 
there's you know that this thing about if you say yes to things you don't know where the world where where, where things will lead mm. you know if you just say yes mm. so i got asked i don't know how it got asked somebody said to me if you were to do uh something oh i know what happened i know what happened so basically i got i met an agent who did public speaking bookings you know like where you just end up talking about yeah. various bits and bobs and i was looking at whether there might be some fun in that because i do a lot of speaking things and i can talk and he said well to be honest i don't really do public speaking i do more comedy stand-up acts and things do you do any comedy and i said not intentionally <laughs> and then he said well you know that's what i do i book things for the edinburgh festival and stand-up shows and stuff um you know maybe you think about it because some of your writing's quite funny and you know you've got uh i think you've got something about you and so I thought, well, I don't know if I have, but and then he said, well, if you could do something, what would it be? And I had this theory, which was sort of rooted in um, when I was with me and Amalak when we were young, that there was no problem in life that couldn't be solved with by without looking by. You know, basically, if you had any problem, there would be a Bruce Springsteen lyric that could solve it. <laughs> and I thought that's quite a fun idea. And so what about if I was to do a talk where I basically expounded this theory and told the story of my life and how specific Springsteen songs had helped me. But then this was the extra bit. At the end of it, I'd throw it to the audience and they could just throw any problem they had in their life at me. And I would try and find a Springsteen lyric that could help answer them. And he said, that sounds like quite fun. I said, well, do you want to, he said, do you want to beat it up into a bit of an idea, you know, a bit more? So I wrote a page on it. He sent it out. And then the next day he gives me a phone call and says, well, the assembly rooms, which is like a really big venue in Edinburgh, they're willing to book you for 24 shows. Oh, my God. So this was, I think. Oh, my God. So this was in about February. Now, I have literally never done. Like I've interviewed people on stage, yeah? yeah, and I've done that sort of stuff. But when you're interviewing people on stage, there's other people in the room. Mm. You know, it's not about, you know, and also you're just sitting there. It's a conversation. Mm. But to stand in front of, you know, a couple of hundred people or whatever, and they have paid money for you to be entertaining and possibly funny. And there's nowhere you can go. You're just you there. I've never done anything like that. And there's all sorts of skills that you need in terms of craft yeah. skills, which I didn't have. And I hadn't written anything either. And he said, so it's something about February. He says, okay, so you basically have to have this done by about maybe July so you can have it ready uh, for performing August. So you've got, you know, February, March, June, July, August. You've got about four months to learn the craft of doing stand-up and write an hour's worth of material. Um, what do you reckon? And I was like, I, I don't know if I've got what it takes. But then I thought, why not just say yes and see what happens? And I'm not quite sure why I did that, but I did. <laughs> and so, yeah, so I did it. And I did 24 shows in 25 days. And then we took it on a bit of a tour as well. And um, so, yeah. No, but they, do you know what's really interesting about that is it's it's interesting how the skills you learn are transferable. So I learned about what it's like to stand in front of three, 400 people on my own and mm -hmm. keep them entertained for an hour. Now, I've never have, I have no plans to do any of that again, particularly, but you use those skills in different ways. So now when I'm talking to the, when I'm doing audience things about the film, some of the things that I used to say then, and even the way I say it, you know, just the skill of how you present in terms of timing and all that yeah. were things that I learned. So I'm glad I did it, but I look back and I think, you know, that's quite a scary thing to do to have a bunch of people saying, okay, entertain us now for the next hour. Yeah. That's out there. The other thing that's a little bit out there, and I have to ask you, oddly, you were on an episode of Friends. 
Is yeah, that this is getting a bit correct? random. This yeah, I mean, because I, I had to ask. That's like, yeah. how well, in the world did that call, happen? How did that happen? Well, so basically, I um, I interviewed Marta Kaufman, David Crane, and um, whoever the third person is, who I can't remember now, um, who are the creators of Friends. And uh, they, I interviewed them, and they were in LA, and I was in London, and it was a phone interview. It was about some play that they'd done, which was showing in London. And at the end of it, I said to them, I've got to say, I am actually a massive Friends fan. Is there any chance I could beat, if I ever go to LA, is there any chance I could watch an episode being filmed? And they said, yeah, just these are, these are our email details. Just keep in touch. So I did. And then as luck would have it, I was actually in LA the following year but for some, somebody else. And I emailed them and they got in touch and said, okay, turn up at lot 25 or whatever it was of Warner Studios. I got there. I'm in the audience and they're recording the episode and it's incredible to see the whole cast there. Mm-hmm. And then one of them, one of the people, sort of stage people said, is, is Safraz here? Safraz here? And I put my hand up. I was like, oh my God, I'm going to get escorted out. Um, <laughs> and they said, uh, would, you, would you mind coming and joining us in Central Perk? And so I sat in Central Perk and some poor girl who was obviously hoping that her sort of job as a mute, silent extra was going to propel her towards a Hollywood career was ch- thrown off her space so I could oh. sit there. And uh, and yeah, so there's the episode was called The One with All the Cheesecakes, which is in series seven. And uh, I am in two scenes. I'm in the opening scene in the back and then I'm sort of at the bar with Gunther, you know, late, later on as well. So that's kind of crazy. That's just bizarre. All right. And and finally, there's a scene in the book which um, is when you are uh, outside a hotel or, or something where you bump into Bruce Springsteen and you say to him three words, point oh, yeah. blank acoustic. And then the next day you're at the concert or, or that night or the next day, you're at the concert and Springsteen actually says, a guy requested this from me and so if you're listening this is if you're out there this is for you and he starts playing point blank acoustic and you in the scene you you cry uncontrollably because and I totally get that and later on your friend Amalak says you see buddy dreams do come true and and I really related to that but was there a point I want to bring you then to you're in the screening room the movie's made you're in a screening room that Bruce is about to come to and watch your movie tell us what that was like so I mean you're right it it, it has been a sort of a surreal journey the thing about the to say about the Springsteen thing was that Gorinda flew out to show the film to Bruce but that was not in London, so I didn't see that. I was not. I was not at that moment um, where he saw it. Um, I think that um, I know what happened though. Is that basically Grinder flew out to show it to him, and then he saw it, and then he came up, stood up, and he hugged her, and he said, "Thank you for treating us so beautifully." Oh um, and you know that's an incredible, incredible thing. I mean, it's a. I mean, to tell you what the nuts thing is, the absolutely crazy thing is that this mm-hmm. film is going to uh, is being released in America on August the sixteenth, mm-hmm. but it's having its premiere. When is this being aired, by the way? We're we're uh, around the time of the um, release of the movie, which in Australia is at the is on the twenty second of August. Okay, so the amazing thing is that this film 
is being released in America in August the 16th, but it's having its premiere in Asbury Park. Mm. And it's having the after show party at the Stone Pony. Oh and I went to America in 1990 as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old mm. with Amalak, and we went to Asbury Park and we stood outside the Stone Pony. And there's a photograph of me and him outside the Stone Pony thinking, oh my God, this is the mythological place that Bruce Springsteen frequently used to play at and still plays at. The idea that the film of me growing up in Luton in 1987 is having its premiere in the Paramount Theatre, Asbury Park, and then having the after show at Stone Pony. That is the definition of mind-blowing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, congratulations on the book, congratulations on the movie, and I know it's going to be absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for your time today, Safraz. It's been great to talk to you. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. If you want to be a freelance writer, our five-week course in Freelance Writing Stage 1 is the fastest way to get there. Step-by-step, step, you'll explore how to get story ideas, approach editors, research and structure your article, plus interview skills, industry expectations and much more. You'll enjoy the convenience of learning online in just a couple of hours a week and have your own tutor to answer all your questions. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash freelance. All right, there you go, Safras Manzor. What a cool story. Very exciting. I'm looking forward to the movie. Yes, yes. All right, so let's move on to almost at the end of this week's episode. What are you doing in the coming week, Al? Uh, just Al stuff. I just don't know. <laughs> 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 I don't, I, you'd think I'd be ready for that question every week, wouldn't you, given that <laughs> you ask me that question stuff. every single week. And yet every week I am taken by surprise <laughs> by the very question that you ask me every week. Um, yeah, I've got nothing. I okay. just... Good. Just our, our generalised owl stuff. That sounds like fun. <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> All right. So uh, where do we find you online, Al? You will find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. And you, Val, where do we find you You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com. And, of course, we'd love to connect with all of you in our podcast listener community on Facebook. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community and request to join. We'd love to have you in there. It's free to join. And it's just an awesome, supportive community for people who love writing. So thanks for listening, everyone. And we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writerscentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.